What Was That Like might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who has been through an extremely unusual situation, like Jamie, who discovered a stranger in her bedroom, or Alyssa, whose ex-boyfriend came to her work and set himself on fire, or Ramon, whose wife hired a hitman to kill him, or Ross, who at age eight survived being shot in the head by his father. Real people telling their story firsthand. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This week's episode takes us back in time to the 1970s to a violent and brutal murder that many thought would never be resolved. Listeners, this episode has graphic detail of a violent sexual assault, so listener discretion is advised. I-96 in West Michigan was mostly deserted in those small hours of Thursday morning, but there they were, fresh tire tracks in the snow of the shoulder. The plow driver pulled off and followed those tracks. He wasn't sure what he would find, but he didn't expect to see the nude body of a young woman, discarded like so much trash. His heart was racing, his stomach turning. He got back in his truck and went for help. Come with me to the bitter cold of February 1st, 1979, when a sharp-eyed snowplow driver spotted something in the median and stopped to explore. It was about one in the morning when he saw it, something that shouldn't be there, in the treed area between the northbound and southbound lanes. When police responded to the scene, they recognized her. In fact, they were half expecting to find her because 23-year-old Janet Chandler was reported missing the morning of January 31st. Janet was presumed kidnapped from her job at Blue Mill Inn in Holland. She worked as a desk clerk on the night shift. The office was robbed and Janet was gone. Police had an ear witness who claimed to have heard Janet responding to a male voice during a phone call that ended abruptly. 23-year-old Janet Chandler, a music student at Hope College, she worked at the Blue Mill Inn in Holland to help pay her way through school. She hadn't worked there very long, just a few months, and while the job paid the bills, it wasn't part of her long-term plan. But music? Music was. Janet loved music and was known for her lovely singing voice. As a senior at Hope College, Janet was 13 credit hours from graduation and she was taking eight credit hours that semester, including private voice lessons. She was extremely active in school music productions and music groups. Newspaper accounts at the time described Janet as a white female, five foot three inches tall, 120 pounds, with shoulder-length brown hair. When she disappeared, she was wearing glasses, black slacks, a gray blouse, a gold watch, and a pearl ring. Holland, Michigan, was not the type of place where something like this would happen. It was a serene place where the sidewalks were decorated with Victorian-style street lamps, and police will fine you $50 if you pick one of the six million tulips that bloom in the spring. Hope College, where Janet attended, was a small Christian school, 
It has a beautiful campus that sits in the downtown area. Around 2 a.m., Janet happened to be on the phone with Jim Nelson, a security guard for Wakenhut Corporation in Holland. There were many Wakenhut guards staying at the motel because there was a strike at a local plant, Chemtron Pigments, and the guards, they were brought in to help keep order. Jim told investigators he heard her say, just a minute, as someone entered the room where she was working. Moments later, he heard Janet tell someone with a deep male voice, not to take all the money. Then the line went dead. He tried to call the reception area from another room, but there was no answer. He immediately called police who began the search for the missing woman. They noticed that although the reception room was normally locked and Janet would need to buzz someone in, Janet had left it unlocked, allowing someone to easily enter what should be a secure area. Along with Janet, $500 was missing from the safe. The phone was left off the hook. Her coat and purse were still at the motel along with her car. Investigators didn't have much to go on. Their only lead was that they believed she was abducted by a lone man driving a white and green GMC Jimmy. A Jimmy is a boxy four-wheel drive truck. Investigators saw tire tracks in the snow and the vehicle, the Jimmy, was reported stolen from St. Joseph, a town 50 miles away. So police put out an all-points bulletin looking for the vehicle. The vehicle had Michigan plates, HYN-574. Roadblocks were set up by police after the robbery, but they were taken down by dawn. The vehicle must have made its way through the roadblocks somehow. A Michigan State Police helicopter was brought out Wednesday to search for the vehicle, but their search was unsuccessful. While police were certain that the remains belonged to the missing Janet Chandler, they still hadn't made a positive identification by 10 a.m. An autopsy was to take place at noon. Police said it appeared that Janet died either late Wednesday night or in the early hours of Thursday morning. Meanwhile, police caught up with that stolen Jimmy. A man and woman were arrested when the vehicle was found in their garage in St. Joseph Township. The vehicle was found in the home of Hubert Haynes, the owner of the Jimmy, 18-year-old Scott Hill, the grandson of Hubert Haynes, and 19-year-old Beth Hansen were arrested for unlawfully driving away a motor vehicle, as well as breaking and entering. Police took the vehicle in for forensic testing, but they could not connect it with Janet's disappearance. Disappointment and frustration set in as investigators realized that their only lead turned out to be a bust. They did not, however, rule out that a four-wheel drive vehicle was involved in the kidnapping. It just wasn't this one. Now they looked at the autopsy to see if it held clues for them to pursue. Autopsy results were filed the Monday after her body was recovered. The pathologist's report stated that Janet's cause of death was strangulation. It also noted sexual assault, and Michigan State Police Detective Sergeant John Carson, he confirmed reports that Janet's hands were bound with surgical tape. Along with the autopsy, police were working with numerous tips that came in. They were especially interested in any that came in from women, women who had been victims of an attempted abduction. At this time, a $1,000 reward from the Silent Observer Program in Holland was offered. They were looking for any information that would lead to an arrest and a conviction. 
A month went by, and the police made no progress. The four detectives assigned to the case saw leads diminish considerably as time passed. The reward for information went up to $3,000, a very generous sum in 1979, but still no leads were drummed up. By July, just six months after the murder, newspapers were reporting that the police were mystified. They could not understand why Janet left the office door unlocked that night, especially since she was usually safety-minded. The Blue Mill Inn was known for its extensive safety measures. After Janet went missing, the manager of the motel, Don Norse, he re-examined his security setup to make sure there was not some flaw that led to Janet's kidnapping. But they found no issues with their security. The reason why the motel was security conscious was because they were a cash business. This is the 70s, the days before debit cards, and not everyone had a credit card. Travelers' checks and cash were routine and acceptable forms of payment. Along with questions about motel security, police were perplexed as to where she went after she disappeared and who could have taken her. The most puzzling aspect of her death is that no one could figure out why Janet was targeted for such a brutal murder. Who would want to kill a music student with no known enemies? With so many unanswered questions, the case went cold and it would stay that way for 25 years. In 2004, the case was given another look by the State Police Regional Cold Case Team, along with Holland Police Department. Investigators interviewed not just family and friends, but anyone who knew Janet or worked with her. They also interviewed anyone who could have stayed at the motel in January or February of 1979. Their interviews took them to Iowa, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and across Michigan. The people they were most focused on were the group of Wacken Hut Corporation security guards that were staying at the motel at the time. And why was 2004 when they decided to take a look? Well, it's because of a documentary film called Who Killed Janet Chandler? In the spring of 2003, David Schock, a documentary filmmaker and Hope College professor, he learned about Janet Chandler's case and her unsolved murder. He'd heard about it from a retired police officer who cited her case as one of his biggest regrets. And before he started the arduous journey of creating the documentary, he told his students, quote, I don't want you to think we're going to solve this murder. Instead, they were going to bring Janet's memory back to the forefront of the minds of law enforcement and the citizens of Holland. So the students read up on what Holland was like in the 1970s, fully engrossing themselves in the culture of the time. They spent a lot of time at the local library going through old newspapers to learn what the community was like in the years before many of these students were born. They read about the strike that was happening at Chemtron, that nearly 200 union members had walked out, and Teamsters organizers brought in experienced strikers from Detroit to lend a hand on the picket line. The strike is the reason why Chemtron brought in security guards from Wackenhut. The guards would keep the gates open for the strike breakers. And the picketers, well, they harassed the guards. The guards, they bullied the strikers and even threw spikes under their tires. It was a very ugly time. When their 12-hour workday was up, the strike breakers and the guards would blow off steam at the Blue Mill Inn and the Tap Room, the bar located next door to the motel. 
Many of the security guards, they resided at the Blue Mill Inn because they'd been brought in from out of state or from other parts of Michigan to keep the plant open. And in the evenings, all different types of appetites would be addressed. Late nights at the tap room and at the Blue Mill Inn were a rollicking good time. Holland, in 1979, it was a small town, and word got around. Janet's classmates, other students from Hope College, many of them were young Christians, just like Janet. They found the Blue Mill Inn a very odd place for her to be working. So this documentary film, it was all created by Shock and eight of his students. In fact, Shock was so engrossed in the work that he was doing, he spent his entire Christmas break editing down 30 hours of footage to 82 minutes. The final project included interviews from police and former teachers, as well as research from police reports, newspapers, and newscasts. What aired on local television struck a nerve with Holland residents, and they demanded that police take another look at the case. As they assembled the film, the students landed an interview with Janet's parents, Jim and Glenna Chandler. Her parents spoke of Janet's deep religious faith. They even pulled out her college entrance essay, which read, quote, My goals are first to acquire what God wants for me. His desire is for me to acquire my bachelor's degree in vocal music education, then my master's degree. The Chandlers described their daughter as in the word. And this, this all paints Janet in a certain light, doesn't it? But what her friends and family didn't know is that Janet was struggling with her place in the world. Each day she went to classes at Hope College, a good Christian, a good student, a good girl. Each Sunday she was in church, serene, devout. But her nights? Her nights were a different story. Janet had boyfriends. She had lovers. She was exploring her sexuality and her future. She had no way of knowing that her actions would cost her her life. In the documentary, Jim Chandler spoke about the first time he visited Janet at her job at the Blue Mill Inn. While there, he noticed rough-looking people loitering in the front lobby, and these people made him very nervous for his only daughter. I wish I had questioned it more, he said as he fought back tears. With the documentary out, investigators dusted off the file and took another look at Janet's case. And there was no shortage of work to be done. After 350 interviews in 18 states over two years, police made their first arrest. Robert M. Lynch, a 66-year-old resident of Three Oaks, Michigan. He was charged with the death of Janet Chandler by Michigan Attorney General Mike Cox and Ottawa County Prosecutor Ronald France. Lynch arose as a suspect through interviews, and in February 2006, Lynch was arraigned on two counts of felony murder and one count of premeditated murder in the 58th District Court in Holland. He was held without bond. If convicted of any or all of the charges, he would go to prison for the rest of his life, without the possibility of parole. When the arrest was made, law enforcement made it a point to credit David Schock and his students' work for the renewing interest in the case. Had it not been for them, the arrest may have never been made. At first blush, Robert Lynch does not seem a likely suspect. He was older than most of the other security guards, so he was outside of their inner circle. He even worked outside of the plant, handing out per diem checks and performing other clerical duties. 
After the strike, he moved back to Three Oaks, reunited with his family, and created a decent life for himself. He opened a beauty school and raised two successful children. But there was something about Robert, something that was a little off to investigators. It may have been that he still had the same drinking problem he had when he was awake in Hut Guard in Holland, just that now he's 65 years old and drinking hard liquor every day. Perhaps, police thought, he was trying to forget something. It took a few interviews before Robert offered up interesting information. In June 2005, he admitted he had been intimately involved with Janet, Involved with her despite his marriage and despite him being significantly older, the two had a physical relationship. Then, Lynch dropped a bombshell. Around the time of the murder, Janet had been at a party with some other guards that, quote, went haywire. When pressed, he clammed up. He said he heard about it from someone else. Ten days later, Robert finally let down his guard after watching a portion of the documentary the part where Jim Chandler talks about his daughter. Robert began to speak, and slowly, over the next several months, he spilled all the secrets he'd been holding on to for more than two decades. With Lynch in custody, authorities were just getting started, and they told the press that more arrests were coming. Robert Lynch was just one of many security guards who were staying at the Blue Mill Inn at the time of the killing. And while his criminal record was mostly clean, Lynch did have a prior conviction for drunk driving in Berrien County back in 2003. After his arrest, his neighbors said they were surprised. One neighbor, Carrie Faltz, she worked with Robert and his wife at a hair salon they once owned in Three Oaks. She said, quote, I saw him coming and going. I knew who he was. He seemed really nice. He seemed normal. And listeners, if you are in the area and were hoping to check out Lynch's place, The salon has since been closed and the building torn down. Sorry. The news also interviewed his neighbor, Thomas Krieger. Thomas had known Robert for a long time as he went to kindergarten with Lynch's son and they graduated together from River Valley High School in 1986. Out of everyone interviewed, Thomas seemed the most shaken by the news of the arrest. Quote, It surprises the hell out of me. I just never would have guessed. Once he was in custody, Robert Lynch began talking. A court affidavit revealed that Robert and other security guards staying at the Blue Mill Inn, they'd lured Janet away from her job by saying they were taking her to a surprise party thrown in her honor. They blindfolded her and taped her mouth. Then they led her to a waiting vehicle. And this party, so-called party, was held at a house near Chemtron, and the house was used by security staff. All of this took place the night Janet was allegedly kidnapped from her office at the Blue Mill. Once they got Janet to the isolated house, the group of men that was present took turns raping her and choking her with a belt that was looped around her neck. 23-year-old Janet Chandler was raped, choked, and tortured for hours. Lynch told police that he was the one who killed Janet, even though there were several individuals who pulled on the belt that ultimately did kill her. After he checked her pulse and found none, he told the other guards and a strike coordinator that Janet was dead. Lynch then took her body to the wooded area along the interstate where she was later discovered by the snowplow driver. On March 25, 2006, a preliminary examination was held in the 58th District Court. Judge Edward Post of Ottawa County Circuit Court would preside over the trial. 
After the hearing, Lynch was returned to the county jail where he was held without bond awaiting his trial. On September 20, 2006, two more suspects are arrested for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Janet Chandler. 58-year-old James Bubba Nelson and 49-year-old Freddie Parker were arrested in West Virginia. There was also a warrant issued for 48-year-old Lori Swank of Nescopic, Pennsylvania. Lori was Janet's co-worker at the Blue Mill. By the next day, not only was Lori Swank arrested, but 54-year-old Arthur Carl Piva and 55-year-old Anthony Williams were taken into custody in connection with the rape, torture, and murder of Janet Chandler. Swank, Nelson, Parker, Piva, and Williams, they are all charged with premeditated murder and committing a murder during the commission of two other felonies, which in this case included kidnapping and criminal sexual conduct. If convicted, each faced a mandatory life sentence without possibility of parole. Remember, Michigan doesn't have the death penalty, so life without parole is the hardest they can go. Like Robert Lynch before her, when Lori Swank got into custody, she started talking. She waived her preliminary hearing and testified about the death of Janet Chandler. In exchange for her testimony, she would plead guilty to second-degree murder and face a potential 10- to 20-year sentence. At this point in the investigation, Robert Lynch has already entered a guilty plea to second-degree murder, and he is sentenced to 25 to 40 years in prison. Carl Piva, James Nelson, and Anthony Williams, they are ordered to stand trial for their crimes. They would be joining Lori Swank on January 29, 2007, to appear in the Ottawa County Circuit Court. Freddie Parker, he's still in West Virginia fighting extradition back to Michigan. So Swank's in custody, and she's telling police what she knows, what she remembers from that long-ago night. And when she does, a clearer story begins to emerge of what happened and why. Lori, who was both Janet's roommate and co-worker, she was attracted to Carl Piva, but Piva was in a relationship with Janet. Lori was jealous of that relationship, so she told Piva that Janet was not faithful to him, that Janet fooled around with other guards. Piva became angry and decided he was going to teach Janet a lesson and, quote, take care of her. To be clear, Swank, who wanted Piva for herself, told him stories about Janet to make him angry. Whether Lori knew that he would be angry enough to let Janet die, we don't know. Lori testified, quote, They were going to pass her around. They were going to be putting her in her place, so to speak, because she thought a lot of herself. They were going to bring her down a few notches, teach her a lesson. It appears that Piva thought that if Janet wanted to have sex with other people, she could do it while everyone watched. Lori attended this so-called party, which was held at the home where Carl Piva was staying, and she watched the hours-long assault on Janet Chandler. Swank both looked on and cheered as her friend, co-worker, and roommate was repeatedly raped and tortured. There were two other women at this so-called party, two additional women who watched and knew what happened but did nothing to step in. These women later said they were afraid that if they interfered, that they would be next, that what was happening to Janet would happen to them. According to Lori Swank, all of the men, except for Piva, resided at the motel where Janet worked, and all of these men had developed intimate relationships with both Lori and Janet. From interviews, authorities learned 
how the crime was able to stay secret for so long. You see, Paiva, he took pictures of the crime, including photos of the men holding the belt around Janet's neck, and he kept the incriminating evidence as blackmail to keep everyone silent. Quote, this is how he was able to keep everyone from talking about the incident for so many years. That was Michigan State Police Detective Michael Jaffrey. These incriminating photos were recovered when detectives searched Piva's home. They also found a video cassette of the documentary Who Killed Janet Chandler, as well as handwritten notes on the police investigation among his belongings. Meanwhile, Freddie Parker, he lost his fight and he was extradited back to Michigan. He would go on trial with the others. On October 1st, 2007, James Nelson, Arthur Carl Piva, Freddie Parker, and Anthony Williams were found guilty of the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Janet Chandler. Jurors deliberated for a day and a half before delivering their verdict. They were all convicted of two counts of felony murder. Piva was convicted of first-degree murder, while the rest were convicted of second-degree murder. The convictions guaranteed each of them would receive sentences of life without the possibility of parole. Lori Swank, she was sentenced to 10 to 20 years for her part in the murder in exchange for her testimony against the men. Two years later, all four men's convictions were upheld by the Michigan Court of Appeals. The defendants raised several complaints about their 2007 trial, but the court rejected all of their arguments. In March of 2013, 61-year-old Paiva was serving his life sentence at the Ernest C. Brooks Correctional Facility in Muskegon when he became ill. He was transferred to the hospital for treatment. He died on March 13, 2013 of respiratory failure. In 2017, his son, Michael Paiva, was sentenced to 30 months in federal prison for conspiracy to distribute controlled substances. These substances included cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. When interviewed, Janet's father said he was sorry for Paiva's family, but he was not sorry that he was dead. Quote, I have no sympathy for him. For his children, it's horrible, of course. And while Jim Chandler had no correspondence with any of the people that killed his child, he did say that the mother of Lori Swank sent them a letter apologizing for her daughter's actions. Lori Swank, Chandler's co-worker and roommate, was released from prison in 2016. As of this writing, she is no longer on parole supervision, and her last known location was in Pennsylvania. In 2019, Robert Lynch was denied an appeal to the state Supreme Court. He is 80 years old and will likely die in prison. The two other men, Freddie Parker and Anthony Williams, will remain in prison. They are both in their 60s and serving life sentences. James Bubba Nelson, he died in prison on June 8, 2020. His cause and location of death were not made public. Janet Chandler's case is one of the most brutal and horrifying stories ever covered on the podcast, and it is an excellent example of what can happen when cold cases are dusted off and re-examined. Without the efforts of David Schock and his students at Hope College, we may never have known the truth about the events of January 31, 1979. Audio production for Already Gone is provided by Gray Multimedia, and this week's episode was co-written by Brittany Martinez. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.